The following is a presentation of Boston Free Radio and 320 Entertainment. This week here on The Chop Session, my conversation with a gentleman who was on the front lines 50 years ago with the hottest band in the world, Kiss, in their humble beginnings, a man named Rick Fox. is good y'all it is your man the indefinable sterling golden back in the building once more this is the chop session a presentation of boston free radio and 320 entertainment and of course we thank y'all once again for locking in for this award-winning interview series of intimate and thought-provoking conversations with the names you need to know now now y'all in case you have ever slept on a chop session premiere here on boston free radio or locked in late for an episode here on our airwaves, say less, we got you. You can stream episodes from seasons one through six of The Chop Session on Spotify. Now, y'all, this week here on The Chop Session, we have for y'all an unmissable conversation with a gentleman who, back in 1973, only 50 years ago, y'all, he was at the front lines as a photographer for the hottest band in the world, Rock and Roll Hall of Famer's Kiss. Now, y'all, after all these years, Kiss need no introduction to you, but for the few who may need one, it goes like this in a nutshell. No other American band in history have earned more gold records than Kiss. Over 100 million albums sold worldwide, decades of record-setting tours, laying down the blueprint for the modern over-the-top sound and vision stage presentation you see today at EDM festivals, hip-hop shows, pop shows, marinas to stadiums, and of course, also laying down the blueprint for modern branding and merchandising in the recording industry. Well, y'all, later this year, it all comes to an end for KISS in the present tense. Their final 50 shows at the tail end of the end of the Road World Tour. It all comes to a conclusion for KISS as a touring entity, December 1st and 2nd at the Mecca the world's most famous arena, New York City's Madison Square Garden, just 10 blocks from where KISS got their start 50 years ago. And the gentleman on the line this evening here on the CHOP session was there at the humble beginnings of KISS, photographing several of KISS's earliest shows. And since that time, the man has had one hell of a career himself since. His name, y'all, is Rick Fox. And he is on the line right now, here on the Chop Session. Rick, what is good, man? Welcome to the Chop Session. How are you, sir? Well, thanks for having me, Sterling, and uh, let's get chopped. Yes, let's get chopped. I appreciate that, actually. I'm going to steal that one from you in the future. Let's get chopped right now, indeed. So let's get to your story first, Rick. How did you first get involved in this crazy industry? Oh, boy. Uh, Well... Getting involved, well, see, there's getting involved and then there's getting involved in the industry. There's this several different tentacles or parts or segments to this. Uh, you know, like a lot of people, I grew up with, uh, you know, with the AM radio under the pillow in the 60s. 
you know, and, and I was exposed to some of the greatest music. And uh, I was born in a, in a very fortuitous, I, I guess, time, time period in history uh, for, for music. It was certainly a golden age, you know, and, and with, with everything that brought us in, in the 60s uh, and then, you know, of course, fall, flowing right into the 70s. And then uh, I guess in the late 60s, 68, something like 67, 68, was, you know, seeing um, Steppenwolf on TV, uh, you know, on Ed Sullivan and yeah. American Bandstand. And it was something something clicked somewhere in the back of my brain that said, that's it. That's I, I saw Nick St. Nicholas, their bass player. And I went, that's it. He's cool. I want to look like that. I want to be like that. I want to be a bass player. And, and Steppenwolf, I credit to my wanting to be, you know, a, a musician. And, and, you know, I mean, I follow the Beatles and a lot of other bands as well, but it was just the, the message and, and everything, something about Steppenwolf just clicked in me like that so uh that's kind of how it, it got me into that and i wanted to be a bass player and uh, yeah i guess uh, yeah, that it just it just blossomed from there what were some of those landmark moments pre-kiss that you were exposed to and what do you recall about those first days you had in the scene well for my my personal my personal experience would have to be after i graduated high school i was working as a foot messenger for a printing company in uh, Midtown Manhattan, right around you know, uh, Madison Avenue, uh, all the um, the advertising agencies. So it was a it was a busy job. Uh, I was within easy you know uh, walking distance to all of the the New York record labels. Uh, certainly, of course, uh, a coin management uh, for Kiss. They were just up you know a few blocks away, yeah. and I was I was always called on you know to to be in these in the buildings where these you know the the businesses were. And then, uh, of course, right down the street on Park Avenue was was a building called the Seagram's Building, you know, Seagram's uh, Alcohol Company, whatever. Yeah. And it's it's their building has been in in you know dozens of films. It's it has two uh, spectacular fountains out front, and everybody sits on the steps around the fountains at lunch, you know, and eats their lunch there. So I happened to be sitting there one day eating my lunch, and this girl walked by, and she had the same haircut I had, you know, the 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 rock and roll, what they call the um, the rooster cut or yes. it was layered. It, you know, like like um, uh, Rod Stewart in the faces had that was that that was the big new style that Paul McGregor created in England and all was cutting the hair and layers, uh, uh, all the rock stars in England. And it came over the pond, you know, to to the States. So I have Peter Chris gave me my first layered haircut like that. So it's 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 something you can identify. You see somebody else with that same haircut. It's like, you know. Oh, it's another creature from the same place I'm from. You know, you, you yeah. immediately identify, recognize each other. So she had the same haircut and I had never seen anyone else outside myself, you know, or rock stars with that haircut. So uh, uh, she immediately struck up a conversation with me and, and told me about there's a club in, in downtown Manhattan on Park Avenue South called Max's Kansas City. Yeah. And I said, I didn't know. I never heard of it. And she was shocked and surprised. She thought everybody knew about it. And I said, no, I don't know about it. And she says, well, I, I have to I have to show you the club. So we made a date. I met her down where that was. It's uh, like Park Avenue South and uh, I want to say 17th Street, something around there, mm -hmm. um, just across the park from what used to be uh, the Academy of Music or, or the Palladium. Yeah. And so uh, she brought me in the club, and that was, I have to credit as, my first trip down the rabbit hole. Yes, 213 so, 
213 Park Avenue, Maxis, Kansas City, man. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and this is this started out as uh, an Andy Warhol uh, artsy crowd that eventually started to attract the likes of Alice Cooper, Iggy Pop, David Bowie, Mick Jagger, and and their uh, orbits and circles of people. And so the music crowd started to mingle, commingle with the art crowd. And eventually Warhol kind of pulled out of there and went you know to someplace else. But uh, the rock crowd stayed. And and it became you know the uh, center hub, along you know for for the New York rock scene. It was a, a club and a restaurant, you know, bar and, and everything. And and uh, th- this is where I met and rubbed shoulders with uh, the Ramones, Wayne County, Tough Darts, uh, the New York Dolls. Actually, I met the New York some of the New York Dolls at Coventry when I was shooting pictures of Kiss uh, some years before that. But you, you get the idea. All all of the yeah. New York bands that were were somebody were. You know, uh, we, we were all this was like a, our, our place to, to gravitate to like that. And and yeah. so uh, she this girl introduced me to a guitar player who had his band called the, the Martian Rock Band. Yeah. And we we clicked immediately right away because we were both into the same. Uh, we leveled the playing field. Uh, we're into like the 50s and 60s sci fi you know, uh, uh, Day the Earth Stood Still, Commander Cody, uh, the, you know, the Rocket Man, all of the, you know, the, the that kind of sci-fi stuff. And plus, he was involved in doing like prestidigitation stage magic stuff. Yeah. So, so he would find ways to incorporate that into their show. And he says, well, what do you do? And I said, well, I'm a bass player. I'm, I'm still kind of green, you know, behind the ears with it, but I'm, I'm a bass player. And I, I, it seems like as I look back, through my career such as it is i find myself being either either replacing somebody else's bass player because i have i guess what they call it some kind of it factor yes i had something something visual that they were lacking in their band that they needed and and this went all the way through my career and and most of the bands that i had joined was they were replacing their bass player with me because I, I brought something apparently to the table that, that they needed that was missing and they wanted to have to get to that next level. In a nutshell, please describe the Martian rock band to us. Well, when I, I uh, the, the band leader, Sebastian, uh, Sebastian Black, he went by the name back then of Seb, Sebi Castle. Uh, you know, you're, you're New York Bronx uh, uh, Italian guitar player, and uh, he, uh, he had me come and see their, a show with with you know, with their other guys before I came in and I watched them and, and it really wasn't much of a, of a visual show. Uh, the songs were okay. They were like a cross between, uh, the punk fifties, uh, space type rock. Uh, I, I don't know how else to describe it. Um, and he wore, he wore a purple jumpsuit. He came out of a gigantic silver box with a red lightning on it. Nice. You know, I mean, you see some people may say, Oh, cheesy. But it was it was right up there with the same effects you'd see in the old Republic serials, the cliffhangers, yeah, as it were, like that. And and that's kind of where his base was visually out of that. And he had a guy that would walk around on the stage in a in a rubber, silver rubber robot he- head mask with a ball and chain and a cape, and there wasn't really much else to it, you know. Uh, the drummer had see through clear plexiglass drums. He wore a silver lame suit. And and I don't remember much else to it. So 
he had me come up to their loft, their rehearsal loft. All the bands in New York rehearsed in lofts like yeah. that, all rehearsal studios. And so uh, uh, I went up and went to their loft, and, and he showed me the songs, and he was very patient and 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 uh, uh, tolerant and, and t- you know, took his time and showed me how the songs went. And I, I picked up pretty quick like that. And, and the first my, – what, how I created my persona was – in the, in the first song, you know, it, it's, it seems a little over the top, but it, this is the first song is called Take Me to Your Leader. Yeah. And in that song, he introduces each member of the band. It's like we play, 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 stop. There's a punch there. And he says the drummer, he's from and, you know, like that. And then the bass player, next we play and stop the bass player. He's from and Mercury. So it was a three syllable word. It fit that particular part. And now I'm cornered into being from Mercury. Yeah. So it wasn't like Jupiter or or something else like that. I was I was from Mercury. Mm. So I took that home with me, and I sat down. I had a little uh, in our basement where I would practice uh, in Brooklyn. I had a little vanity with a mirror, a little table, and you know. Like, and I'm thinking, okay, well, what can I be? How how do I? What persona can I create here? You know. And and so uh, my favorite monster universal monster was the creature from the black lagoon yeah so i tried to i tried to blend that into something uh because i was of course uh, heavily influenced by kiss you know gene was the demon and uh ace fraley was the spaceman so i'm trying to bring all of these things together and and culminate collate something and so uh, i thought well the american southwest deserts Mercury is a hot planet that we know of. So the, the hottest parts of the earth have life and they have lizards. There are some lizards that can live in a desert environment. So that was my, my onus right there to create that character. And I blended something that looked like a cross between the creature and something maybe people have described as Ziggy Stardust type <laughs> Like that, and 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 I so it. I created a, a lizard man, a, a reptilian, if I you will. It. I love you know, it. This, you was, know? this was decades, decades before UFO talk spoke about reptilians. Yeah. So so I created this reptilian, reptoid human, human reptilian character, and uh, and I put a couple of drops of green food coloring in my mouth. So now my mouth was green. Uh, my skin was green, like a sparkly green. I had scales on my chest. Wow. Uh, uh, my, you know, I have, I have there's pictures of it. I have I put out. Um, you know, I, I drew my my eyebrows up like Spock. I had a streak, silver streak in my hair, like that. And I got a, 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 you know, Broadway, the ballet in New York. There was a store called Capizio, which which uh, uh, tends to all of the ballet crowd, and right. they sell spandex body suits. So I got a black spandex bodysuit. I rhinestoned it up that looked like like Ace Fraley's costume on the Kiss Alive album. Mm-hmm. And silver platform boots. I had uh, uh, you know all of this uh, this persona put together, and you know Gene Simmons, of course, would would belch blood on stage. So taking a cue from that, I would uh, secretly take a mouthful of of like beer. Uh, well, some of the people were watching something else on the stage and I could turn around and now like putting Alka-Seltzer in your mouth, only it's green and it's green foamy, you know, uh, a distemper would come out of my mouth. Oh my God. <laughs> and Damn. it was, it was worth, you know, the, the shock and awe was Damn. worth it. 
you know, yeah. and, and Sebastian used to shoot flames out of the end of his guitar, out of his headstock. Wild. And I said, can you show me how you do that? And, you know, magicians don't normally show how the trick is done, the gag, but I'm in the band. So I said, I'd like to figure something. Maybe I could do something too like that. And and he knew yeah. all of the, uh, the magic stores around 42nd Street, Times Square, that supply their magic to all the, the stage magicians. So it's it's essentially a gag called Dragon's Breath, and it's a it's a powder that's inert. Uh, if you pour it on a table and throw a match on it, it won't burn. Yeah, it only bur- it only burns if it's aerated, sprayed out into the air, which is why flour can be explosive. Yeah, uh, in, in a powder form like that, it's essentially the same the same concept. And I found a way to incorporate it into my hand. And using uh, flash paper as my ignition system, I could sweep my hand across from left to right with and, and with this trailing ball of flame in my hand, and then I would squeeze the the uh, um, the, 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 the the I have had it set up inside a glove, uh, a silver lemonade cocktail glove with a straw running up my finger, and like like Spider Man would would press the center of his palm to shoot his webs right. It was the same principle. I would squeeze the bottle in the palm of my hand under the glove, and it would shoot the powder out through my finger. And now I'm shooting a ball of fluff, you know, trail of fire out of my hand. That's unreal. Which again, it was was you know, wow, nobody was doing that back then. Right. You know, and and so it just blended from there. Uh, you know, uh, Sebastian and I would would in in a in a friendly way, kind of like. Not not one up each other, but what else can we bring to the table? What else? So I'm, now all of a sudden we've got. Uh, uh, Ed Sebastian took a cue from my makeup. He upped his game, and and painted his face with black and white. And had designs on it, not like Kiss, but differently, like that. Uh, um, yeah. And and so you know he he evolved a, a a black costume as well. And so we started to become heavier, more theatrical in our in our stage presentation. And uh, my dad had a, a, a eight millimeter projector, and I remember in the back of the um, in the back of the monster magazines and the comic magazines, they would sell little five minute reels of clips from various horror and science fiction movies. So I would set these up and have the camera projected behind us at the wall. And, and it, you know, and there were we would have it set up where the, we could have a cue where I could run over and do these things while he was doing something else. But the magician's misdirection gag, well, you know, you, you watch over there while I'm setting up this and then you watch over here while he's doing that like that. And, and we worked it into our act and I would show these five minute clips of, of Commander Cody flying through the air and, with the, with, you know, the rocket man and and scenes with Michael Rennie and Gort from Day the Earth Stood Still. And I project these behind us. You know, like that. And and so uh, we incorporated a lot of this stuff into our, you know, it, it was like a multimedia thing that before anyone else was doing this kind of stuff. Yes. You know, I, I took that cue from the old Fillmore East and Fillmore West shows where they would have a, a, an overhead projector back by the soundboard and they would put different colored oils in between two pieces of plastic and they'd swish it around and project it over the band. And everybody that was doing LSD was tripping out watching all these optic patterns move behind the band. So I just, I just upped that up into projecting movies behind us, uh, you know, on, on the wall behind us like that on the screen. 
Yes. And so, you know, uh, and again, I, I, I took a lot of my cues from Kiss uh, as well. And, and just, you know, it, it was, uh, it certainly got a lot of attention. We weren't as violent as the Mars Attacks gum cards. There you go. <laughs> we, were, we were kind of hit, we were kind of hitting you know a little bit less less violent but hinting in that direction so absolutely now yeah. speaking of the kiss influence and how it affected martian rock band now we will pivot toward the bulk of the conversation here which is that time you spent in the earliest days of the kiss story so for those who are unfamiliar It's like this, y'all. In 1973, there were two major milestones in the history of music that happened in the same calendar year. Not only did you have out in Sedwick Ave in the Bronx of August 73, DJ Cool Herc starting up the birth of hip hop. Earlier that year, you had the birth of Kiss in the clubs of New York City. And you had Rick Fox right there at the front lines witnessing the earliest days, the formation of the entire KISS phenomenon from the very beginning as a photographer and other ties you have as well. So let's talk now about how you got connected to KISS and what those ties were. Well, my exposure started with with meeting the the Criscola family who who moved from Williamsburg to Greenpoint. They lived right around the corner from me. Yeah. Uh, And I, I met eventually met and became friends with Peter's uh, younger sisters. And from there, they, they said, well, you know, uh, we, there, there was, there's two brothers. It was Joey who was younger, closer to my age, I guess. And Peter, who they said was a rock star. And they said, our big brother's a rock star. And at that right. point he had just, he was already recorded an album with a band called Chelsea. Yes. 71, I think it was 70, 71. Chelsea? Uh, yeah, thereabouts. Right, thereabouts, right. yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so um, um, he he was, well, Chelsea had broke up and he was kind of between, he was do, doing, you know, various gigs here and there at, at the clubs in Manhattan, Metropole and whatnot, uh, uh, sitting in and doing sessions with people. And then he put that infamous or famous ad you know in in uh, the village voice and rolling stone drummer willing to do anything to make it uh and so uh you know gene and paul saw the ad called him up and the next thing you know he's rehearsing with them three piece so uh um how do i put this yeah he would stop he was on his way into manhattan to to rehearse with the band he was driving Lydia's, uh, uh, she had a silver Chevy Vega, I think it was. And he would stop at his mom's house, you know, around the corner from me and, and visit and say hi to the family and then head, head into Manhattan. So uh, that's kind of how I met him like that. And, and he did. He looked like a rock star. He had the layered rock star haircut and the, the jeans, the platform boots, mm-hmm. you know, like that. Uh, that's, you know, we were all copying uh, the English look, the English glam rock look yeah. like that. And and so uh, and so uh, um, yeah, he was and he was plus he was a, he was a real, you know, New York, Brooklyn, you know, sar- sarcasm is, is a survival tool. It's a way of life. You know, Certainly. people outside of New York might not understand that, but, uh, you know, he was a real wise guy, smart ass like that, but, you know, uh, to, you know, like, like kind of like an, a, a, he could have been a, a gangster when he spoke. <laughs> sure. 
True. He, you know, it was like he was like he was like he was made. You know, like if they say uh, mafia type guy. Yeah. But but uh, um, so he offered to have us, you know, come with him and said, "I'm playing with this band. You want to come watch us rehearse?" We're like, "Yeah, okay." You know, not knowing what to expect. So, you know, we'd pile into the car, uh, me and, and the sisters and, and a couple of our other friends from the neighborhood. And uh, and we go to their loft on 23rd Street and there's Gene and there's Paul. And and it was just the three of them rehearsing. And, and the songs were, you know, the early stages of pretty much what you heard on the first album. Yeah. But we had we had no yardstick to, to measure this against. We had never heard or seen anything like this before. This was a completely new sound, you know, and, and, yeah. you know, I, I had, I had as a photographer, budding photographer, I'd snuck into, you know, the Coventry and, and, and other clubs to, to, to photograph bands. And so I, I kind of had a little exposure, but I, nobody had songs that were arranged that sounded like kiss and they weren't even called kiss yet. That's right. This was, this was not, not wicked Lester, but it wasn't kiss. It was that, that limbo time in between the two bands. One thing I want to know from you, Rick, you know, about those early days, you mentioned Coventry a couple of times, and that was where Kiss first performed their first gig in January of 73. I don't know if it was before or after, but I know Kiss had played a couple of loft parties, kind of kind of introduced themselves, and they, they, didn't, they didn't fully have the whole makeup concept down yet. It was kind of closer to, you know, drag New York Dolls kind of look. Yeah, uh, that that the, the, their characterization of, of who they became came a little bit after that. But um, Coventry was a, a, a bar club. It was formerly called the Popcorn Pub, and it was in Queens. Uh, and me in, in Greenpoint, Brooklyn, uh, Coventry was about maybe 10, 15 minutes by by car you know, to drive to. Uh, walking, of course, took a lot longer, but uh it was it was a drive to there, and then uh, it was I think it was Queens Boulevard. It was under the elevated train, uh, I think, or, or I don't know if it came through that that part. Uh, but bands from Manhattan were starting to fan out into some of the suburbs, and Coventry became one of those clubs. So about a week after they changed the name from the Popcorn Pub to Coventry, is when Kiss played there. Now I I had I had seen. Um, the Harlots of 42nd Street, uh, which were like, you know, uh, uh, another version of the New York Dolls. Um, uh, I've seen uh, Turn Down Broadway. I've seen Isis, which was an all-female band with a horn section. Yep. Um, they played there. Um, uh, who else? Um, the, the Bratz. The Bratz looked like mm-hmm. like the New York rock version of Small Faces. Yeah. They all had the, they all had the same, you know, layered rooster haircuts uh, you know, flashy clothes. There was, there were two main stores in Manhattan that, that, uh, supplied, you know, stage rock star clothing, uh, was, was, uh, jumping Jack flash JJ flash up on 59th street by the bridge. And then downtown was a place called granny's takes a trip. And I found all the rockers by, you know, their platform boots, their silver lame costuming or whatever they were wearing was these places were supply that. And, and so, and of course, if you wanted, you know, uh, the leather and stud stuff, well, that was your, your West side, uh, uh gay crowd, the BD S and M crowd, uh, who would be wearing, you know, the, the, the gay guys in New York at that time were mostly butch. So very, you know, like, like in, in the village people, you know, the, uh, um, macho, 
you know, yeah. they, they weren't so much, they weren't so much the effeminate flamboyant, you know, peacock type guys. They, I mean, yeah. those were there, but the ones you noticed the most were the, were the, the t- they look like truck drivers, you know? So a uh-huh. lot of guys who were gay in the business, I, I didn't even know they were gay until they happened to mention it, yeah. you know, because they didn't, they didn't come off overtly gay the way, you know, some people do. And of course, that that introduced me to people like Bill LaCoin, who I didn't know Bill was gay, and and so was Sean Delaney, uh, his partner, right? Who was 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 the fifth member of Kiss, you know, the unofficial, you know, he was their choreographer, their songwriter, their costume designer. Uh, Sean was the guy that that fine honed, uh, uh, fine tuned Kiss into the, what they eventually became. That's right. So, but he's got and he's that's so so Sean was tapping into the whole B and D S and M crowd for Kiss's early look of black and silver and all the studs. So these were the supply sources for costuming. And and and, and so, uh, well, Kiss was the only one that really went heavy in that direction. Everyone else went, you know, uh, following the, the, the English uh, rock scene, the glam scene, right. so, as it were, like that. And so a lot of these bands played Coventry, and I would get in there with my camera, and I would, you know, uh, underage, of course, <laughs> under twenty-one, uh, <laughs> and and I would finagle my way in, and I I was even starting to get clothes like this. So back then, we didn't have terms like poser and and things like that. If 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 the crowd going to see the band tried to dress like the band, that was seen as a camaraderie, a, a show of support. Yes, you were part of the part of the family. Yes, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So I would I would camouflage myself, if you will, and I got you know satin pants and some platform shoes and you know a shiny shirt or whatever, you know, and my hair layered, you know, and the guys at the door would be like, "You look kind of young," and I'm like, "Well, I'm here. I got my camera. I'm here to shoot the bands." I'm like, "Let me see your ID," you know, and I managed to in my early way. I don't remember how I did this, but I managed to make fake ID. All right, Rick, let's talk now about the photos, the ones you took of Kiss 50 years ago in their beginnings in 1973. Rick, for many, many years, these iconic images that you took of Kiss on stage went uncredited. For decades, Sterling, yes. decades. Yes. Uh, well, uh... Like I said, I, in, in high school, I, I was of the other many things I got involved in. I was a member of the f- photography club. So I had access to all of the developing uh, uh, needs that I need. Free film, free chemicals, the dark room. Uh, and, and this is, you know, uh, I would take my pictures. And then after school, I spent a few hours in, in, the, in, the, in the dark room in the lab developing my negatives. And then I'd, I'd print my pictures like that. And, and so I was, you know, I could have gone in so many different directions as a, as a photographer with this. And so, uh, I took pictures of kiss at Coventry. Uh, one of the times I was using a, a, a foreign camera, it was a box camera and I, I didn't know how to use it well enough. And some of the pictures came out really strange looking or, or a little maybe underdeveloped, but, but then I also, I was a little bit better by the time Kiss did their uh, famous press presentation at the old Fillmore East, yeah, and I took I took pictures of them there. I was probably the only guy who knew exactly when Gene was going to spit the fire, and I got some, you know, a really good shot of that, mm, yeah, uh, like that. And and so uh, these pictures all came into my collection, and I, of course I was certainly on on uh, a coin management's radar uh, mm-hmm. uh, as as probably one of their biggest fans early on back then. 
And so, mm-hmm. um, um, because eventually Sean asked me to come and work for another band he put together called Spike, which was like a three-piece version of Kiss, different different colored leather, but you know, le- yellow leather and studs and the black spandex bodysuits and black uh, leather uh, um, harnesses and collars and platform boots. All uh, that was a whole another thing, but um, uh, the pictures. When I came to California, I met some some super Kiss fans, and the fact that I knew Kiss personally, that I was in that orbit, almost you know before almost anyone else. Uh, I mean, you know, Lydia Chris, of course, was there. She was she was uh, being married to Peter, but there was this hard. It was a very very small group of people that were yeah. in that Kiss orbit back then, and the, the, so the pictures I took, I had a scrapbook. And I was a little strapped for money, so I was offering to sell some of my pictures to one of the fans. And uh, little did I know that this this conniving guy would uh, make copies of the pictures and copies and yeah. copies and copies. And the guy started selling them, you know, uh, around the world to, to various fans. And nobody knew that these pictures were mine. There was no watermarks. There was no photo credits. And, wow. and some years ago, I, I discovered, if you Google KISS 1972, all of these pictures, these images come up of, of various KISS bootlegs that people have made over the years, you know, CD bootlegs and whatnot. Uh-huh. And, and they're using my pictures in, in many of these dozens of these, these uh, KISS bootlegs. Wow. And I started to find my photographs on the Internet with other people's watermarks on them. You know, and and so uh, I've been on a on a campaign to try and uh, as as impossible and monumental as it seems to to try and correct that, so that you know the, that uh, if anybody sees these pictures, to please either report them to me or or tell those people that have other watermarks on them that you don't have the rights to those pictures. Those pictures belong to me. I think you know, one- and and I don't I, I don't have Gene's financial wherewithal to be able to hunt each one of these, these people or these, whoever it is down and, and get my, my uh, financial recompense back. Rick, I hear that, sir. Now, in case y'all are tuning in right now, this is the Chop Session. I am your man, Sterling Golden, and this is Boston Free Radio. We've got Rick Fox on the line this evening talking about his experiences from way back in 1973 as an early supporter and photographer for Rock and Roll Hall of Famers, KISS. And as y'all know by now, KISS are on their final stretch of the end of the road tour, their final tour ever. You've got the longest tenured lineup of KISS, Gene Simmons, Tommy Thayer, Eric Singer, and of course, Paul Stanley, representing KISS for said final tour. If y'all live in Krakow, Poland, tonight is your night. KISS pull up to Tauron Arena. This coming Wednesday in Dresden, Germany at the arena, KISS invade. On Thursday in Berlin at the Max Schmeling Hall, KISS are on stage for the end of the road tour. And this coming weekend... On Sunday, KISS will be in Cartagena, Spain for the Rock Imperium Festival. And there's more tour dates to be found at KISSonline.com. Whatever tickets or VIP packages are left, secure them now before they are gone. And of course, this tour ends at the end of this year, December 1st and 2nd at the Mecca, the world's most famous arena, New York City's Madison Square Garden, the home arena for KISS. 10 blocks from where the band first started 50 years ago. 
All right, Rick, let's get back into this conversation. I think one project that really helped to put the Rick Fox name on the map was a book that came out back in the 2010s called Nothing to Lose. That was a documentation of the formative years of KISS. And Rick Fox was one of the names credited in this book as a photographer. And for some fans, it was a new, you know, undiscovered name for them. But I really think, Rick, you know, that book helped to further educate folks who weren't aware of those connections and those photos being yours about how important you are to the early KISS story. That's very true. And, and, uh, and, I, and my, my, uh, my gratitude is eternal to Ken Sharp, for the author, for reaching out to me about that. And, and I had discussed what I just told you, this very point with him. And he said, well, that's kind of one of the reasons why I wanted to bring you in on this book, because I, I know of the value that you bring to the table in the KISS universe. And I wanted to see to it that you finally gotten your due credit, at least from what I can offer with the book. And I'd like to ask your permission if I can use some of your pictures. And, and of course, and he interviewed me and in my memories, like we're doing now uh, for that for that book, Nothing to Lose, uh, The Making of Early Kiss. And so he did interview me and, and that's in the book. And my pictures are in there. Finally, you credit it as Rick Fox. Yes. So hopefully, hopefully that can start some in its at least at some capacity to the people who, who, you know, Kiss fans who get the book and go, oh, crap, that's who those pictures belong to. You know, wow. like that. And and so that's kind of how it started to spread. And then um, I was about a, a year or so ago, I got contacted by another KISS author. A&E is doing a, a special on KISS, on, on, on early KISS, and we'd like to license some of your photos. So uh, a financial arrangement was a, was arrived to agree down. And, and so they, they licensed some of my, my Coventry pictures for that that special. So that also helped as well. It but did. Again, it's 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 just a, it's just a little drop in the ocean. You know, it, it it needs really to, it needs to go worldwide. And hence, programs like this one here this week on the Chop Session, where we are doing our part to let the world know about the importance of Rick Fox to the early Kiss story, and a lot of those iconic early Kiss images you've seen through the decades belong to Rick Fox, you know. So most likely, y'all, if you have something from around, say, 1973 or 74 from the New York club scene of Kiss, most likely nine times out of ten, it's a Rick Fox photo. And in fact, again, books like Nothing to Lose illustrate that. And specials like the biography two-part Kissery special from 2021, as mentioned earlier on, showcase that, which, by the way, is a must-view for anyone who doesn't know about the history of Kiss. Great starting point for a primer would be biography history. Now, Rick, in 2014, the original four founding members of Kiss were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in New York, out in Brooklyn, actually, at Barclays Center. I was there. Fabulous evening. I want to know, you know, I'm not sure if you were there, but I would like to know your thoughts on that induction in relation to those earliest years you had with the band. I remember prior to that, Paul Stanley was had, uh, it was a it was a famous quote that I I I, I remember. He's saying that um, something about if if you're not invited to the party continuously, that means you're not wanted at the party. Right. Paul Paul always had a great way of summarizing uh, uh, things that that um, he could take something negative and turn it into not something positive, but something that would make you go, 
Hmm. Yes. You know, that, that. that's mm-hmm. that's deep. He always had a, a, a very interesting way of bringing up a point and making you think about it. He's good like that. Uh, yeah. 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 And, and so so he said, you know, it's 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 pretty clear that, you know, after so long, if you're not invited to the party, it's obviously you're not wanted there. Yeah. And, and I've always I've always remembered that quote. Uh, but Kiss does not appeal to critics. And the critics are the ones who set the, you know, the, the, the are the judges who sit in, in judgment of who gets in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. It's not fans. Kiss is for the fans. Yes. Kiss is for the people who buy the records and come to the shows and, and, and like that. It's not the people who write the reviews and sit there and, and condescendingly and, and, and try to, you know, mock Kiss for, for who they are and what they do. It's, it's not it's rocket science. It's not there to make you think. It's there to make you feel. Yeah, and and when you know Gene said when you go to a a, a a a theatrical show, people listen with their eyes, so they're they're seeing the show. You know, if you want to you want to listen to their music, you buy the record, take it home, and sit down and listen to it. But you know that's that's part of the appeal of of Kiss. You know, and and I've taken so many cues from them because you know uh, when you when as a musician you bring something to the stage, people are paying decent money to come see you perform. True. Not stand there. That's right. You know, if they want to see guys, you know, and, and wearing wear, uh, cargo pants and, and combat boots, well, that's what happened when Seattle came in. You know, and it, it completely took away the, the the show aspect. Right. But 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 growing up in an era where, you know, uh, at least to my opinion and to some others, when you want to see a band like Kiss on stage, these were gods. You know, they did. You, you, the people in the audience didn't look like well. The band in the audience didn't look like each other. That came in in the nineties. You know, there was like an a backlash against that. <laughs> but yeah, uh, you know, Kiss and Angel and Stars and you know bands that put on a show made you made you leave that theater going, "Wow, what did I just see?" You know, that sells records exactly. And, and trans- that translates into higher sales, etc., and so on, and and you know, and uh, the cycle continues for Absolutely. as long as you can you can stretch that out. Yeah. So that that that's what it did for me. So to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, the people who sit in judgment are not fans; they're critics. In the years since, of course, some of the bands you've been in, obviously the metal band Wasp was chief among them, along with Lust. There's Sin, of course. But before it was Sin, it was called Virgin. Now. One question I have for you, and this may be completely unrelated to this band, but in the Gene Simmons Vault Project, uh, there is a track called I Have Just Begun to Fight from 1979, and it was credited to a band called Virgin. Now, was this the same Virgin as it heard on this song? Uh, That's a good question. I'm not familiar with the song, but uh, Virgin came out of... Uh, after our, after the Martian rock band folded, uh, I was scouted uh, on it. Uh, uh, it wasn't on purpose, but uh, it was just a matter of chance that uh, I was working in, in the West Village in, in New York, in Manhattan, uh, just a few doors down from Electric Ladyland Studios. And this guy walked in, you know, rock and roll looking guy with his, his girlfriend or his wife, whatever. And, and, you know, we struck up a conversation. They obviously liked the way I looked. And he said, what are you doing? I said, I'm a bass player. And he said, oh, we're, we're, I think we're looking for a bass player. Well, he, he happened to be one of the guitar players in the band from New Jersey called Virgin. And I said, oh, I seen your picture in Rock Scene Magazine. You guys are standing down by the Jersey Shore on the boardwalk with the, he says, yeah, that's us. And I went, oh, okay. Yeah. 
And and just we we would like to replace here we guess number two. We'd like to replace the guy that we have, uh, and you got a really good look for that. So it was set up and arranged for me to come and audition for the for the band. And I uh, long story short, I got the gig, and you know, and we we had an Alice Cooper show. We had a we did Bowie, we did Queen, we did Mott the Hoople, uh, Led Zeppelin. You know, a lot right. of the stuff that was English glam, British glam, mm-hmm. and and American you know, hard rock like that. And that was Virgin, and this was 1976. So this actually predates the other Virgin that Bill O'Coin, I think managed. Okay, which was the different bands then. The okay. band that, yeah. That Gene Gene was re- referring to, and that Virgin became uh, they were like the opening act for Sean Cassidy. We we stopped using Virgin not because of them, but but we we were changing members, and our band was starting to uh, change in, in direction a little bit. So as we we lost members and we we got new members, uh, as you mentioned, lust. It, it was we were lust for like two or three weeks, and from right after that, I came up with the name Sin, which is like. It's the end of 76 into 77, and that's where Sin was born. Yes. And obviously, I mentioned earlier on, you know, Wasp. We'll touch on that real quick also. I understand yeah. that you're also credited with the name uh, becoming an acronym. Yes, uh, that's true. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, uh, every, pretty, pretty, much, pretty much everyone agrees with that except the band leader. Okay. So Blackie <laughs> Lawless disagrees with that. Uh, he's he's in his own campaign has attempted to censor, uh, 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 disparage and uh, discredit and and otherwise not acknowledge the fact of, of the truth behind uh, the formation and creation of Wasp. You see with the Kiss thing, and you've also stayed active too in entertainment and in theatrics and things like that. What have you done in the recent years? <laughs> Well, uh, there was a point at the end of in the 80s, in the, right in the beginning of the 90s, when the whole Seattle thing was was flipping and Hollywood had run its its course and, and the, the music scene had run its course. And everybody was just it was just a conglomeration of everybody copying everybody else. It was it was almost incestual. There was just there was nothing super exciting uh, on, the, on the music scene in L.A. It, it, it run its course. And, you know, depending on who you talk to, some people say it was a blessing that Seattle came in and, and flushed the toilets, so to speak. And then, and then but at the same time, it kind of helped destroy the stuff that everybody loved, you know, watching and doing. Uh, I, I I kind of started to uh, morph my way out of the music business for a little while as well. I mean, I, I, I tried to blend as best as I could. I. I Changed my look over to more of like a, a, you know, everybody was growing their hair out. The layers thing was, the pretty boy layers thing was not. Uh, all the bands started to grow their hair out like one length, one layer, like, uh, you know, one length. And and my look was, you know, I started to have a little bit of the five o'clock shadow and like that. And I looked a little bit more like the Al Jorgensen ministry kind of look, you know, the the, the tough bad boy look. I guess, if you will, uh, you know, bands like Circus of Power and Ministry and Nine Inch Nails, that was becoming, you know, right. uh, that was the, that was the heavier end of of the new wave of music that was coming out. So um, I, I liked it because it was heavy, but I, you know, and it was an industri- the industrial thing had energy to it. I just wasn't a big fan of the what we call the, the cookie monster vocals, you know, the growling vocals. It wasn't really singing. It was it's more, you know, uh, um, 
forced anger, I guess, if you will. Right. And and it, it took away. The, it, it, it's it's like so anybody can get up on the stage now and and say like this. And I, 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 <laughs> it's not like you know, it's yes. like a growling dog. Yes. You know. So yes. Uh, so I, I got out of the music business a little bit, and I I worked in the film industry, which brought more of a steady paycheck. Uh, like that. And I, I worked for, with, with a lot of movie stars and, and worked on TV series and, and, uh, stuff, you know, went on video and whatnot. And, and then from there, uh, I started getting involved in Renaissance fairs. It was another aspect, another platform yeah. from which to perform, to perform, you know, and, 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 uh, in our house growing up, you know, a lot of, a lot of got boys grow up and their dads are into sports. So they, it's a, it's a father son bonding thing is watching sports. Well, right. in our house, in our house, it was movies. My dad was a big fan of, like I said, you know, the 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 golden age of 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 uh, the well, the cliffhangers and and you know the, those kind of the golden age of Hollywood. So I was weaned on the swashbucklers and Errol Flynn and Tyrone Power and Basil Rathbone, like that. And and so I had an aptitude for being able to to pick up a sword, and and learn how to use it. Right. So as I as I got involved in Renaissance fairs, uh, I started like most people do, which is a real easy impression, which is pirate, you know. And and so I was with several different pirate groups, now leaving music behind, and and of course there's no internet at this time uh, uh, available to the general public, so uh, I fell off the radar, and, and a lot of these people figure, well, he hasn't done anything in years. That's because I I didn't move forward, I didn't move backwards, I moved laterally, and now I was performing in the Renaissance, uh, era, you know, that platform, and so I right. uh, from pirate I I went to uh, I went to a one of the largest groups at the time in Southern California was the Royal Spanish Court, which was representing Spain at the time of the Armada, you know, late 16th century. Right. And of course, I've always been a super fan of military history since I was a, a child. I had been fascinated by military history. Yeah. And and so this, this took on a, a new extension for me. And, you know, so I'm on stage, we're doing, you know, shows with, with sword fighting and, you know, choreo choreographed stuff, things like that. And, and the costuming and the pageantry And I was, I was in my element and, and the people in the, in the Renaissance uh, uh, movement had no idea that I was, you know, doing the rock star thing before that, uh, it was still a, 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 a form of rock star just on a different stage to a different audience. Exactly. You know, yeah. like that. And then from, from that uh, I wound up uh, discussing this with my father, who was uh, something of a historian, and he was uh, researching our ancestry, our Polish ancestry. And uh, I said, you know, what was going on? All, the, all the, the countries of Western Europe were pretty much represented at Ren Fairs. You know, it's it's Queen Elizabeth and Henry VIII. It's the Liz and Hank show, you know, for the for the for the tourists. I said, what was going on in Poland at this time? And that's when he opened the floodgate to to our ancestry and the uh, the the famous 17th century Polish winged hussars, the the, the yeah. winged knights, and like that. And I I I was a sponge, man. I was just sucking up all the knowledge I could get my hands on. Certainly. And and at that point, uh, I was just starting to learn how to use the internet. And I didn't speak Polish fluently enough to know how to navigate Polish websites because there was at that time virtually nothing available in the English language yeah. to ex to explain this. 
And, it, it, you know, it, trying to explain it to the average person was tr- like trying to explain Kiss in 1972 <laughs> to my classmates in high school. Right. There was, there was, there was, it was, there's some things that are, are just beyond explanation to the average person. All right, Rick. Here's a question I've been waiting to ask you all hour long, and now we're reaching the end of our conversation. So let's bring it out. As I mentioned at the top of the show, the final two dates of the end of the road tour for KISS are December 1st and 2nd at New York City's Madison Square Garden, 10 blocks from where KISS got their start 50 years ago. So let's say hypothetically, KISS management reach out to Rick Fox to get back where he started, you know? Photographing the final two Kiss concerts in December. What does Rick Fox say to Kiss? I mean, would you do it? Sure, absolutely, I'd do it. It'd be, it, would be, it would be a blast, you know. I, I don't know. I mean, there's there's ton, tons of photographers who are, you know, have already shot Kiss and and you know, uh, uh, I know I don't know what I would be able to bring to the table except for the fact that it would just be a a culmination of running full circle from the beginning to the end. Yeah. Like that. And so if they, if that somehow from your lips to God's ears reached, you know, the, the kiss office, that would be, it would be great. You know, I, but I'd probably shoot it with my phone instead of a camera. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'll say this, you know, in that photo pit, in that proverbial final kiss concert, there's one thing you'll have over all them and that you were there in the very beginning. And some of those early photos you'll undoubtedly see in the tour program were shot by Rick Fox. You know, I, I, one of the biggest crimes, I, in fact, I discussed this with you earlier. One of the biggest crimes is that for, for, for me being there from the very beginning, all the way up until now, it's, it's just curious and a crime, uh, at least in my opinion. And, and you know what, I've, yeah. I've mentioned this to many fans and they also agree. How come Rick Fox has never been invited as a featured guest speaker to any of the kiss conventions? That does make you, know? you think. Yeah. That does make you think of, of, what, of what I have to bring to the table. You would think, oh, it's a no brainer. You know, Rick's got to be there. And and there's been so many people, other people who have been invited as featured guest speakers to KISS conventions. And, and you know, uh, I guess either I'm not on the radar or what, I can't answer for other people's reasons why or why not. But uh, it's it's just a shame that, yeah. you know, KISS is. Kiss is coming to an end, and I've still never been invited as a featured guest speaker at any Kiss convention. Well, I'll say this: you know, even though the uh, Kiss Fan Expo thing has kind of dried up in recent years, one thing that still happens every year is the annual Kiss Cruise, and that does have guests annually and featured folks that come through and either perform or speak or that kind of thing. I would not be shocked if one day you ended up as a guest on one of the annual uh, Kiss cruises. <laughs> You would wonder why I wasn't on them from the beginnings. It's, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's the same subject. Uh, I guess I don't have enough connections in the right places or there isn't enough of the right people who, who know the right people to get it to the top and say, hey, you know, why is he not here, you know, as, as you know, somebody who shares the kiss story with, with us on the cruises? Uh, I, I just don't know why that's never happened. Well, y'all, if you're listening out there and if you're among the powers that be that make those decisions and you happen to hear this episode of The Chop Session from your man Sterling Golden to you, book Rick Fox and let him share his story about early kiss with generations, really, of of fans and listeners who either may know a little bit about your story or maybe hearing about you for the first time. I mean, there's – 
younger folks out there from the past 20 years who, for them, Kiss is Gene Simmons, Eric Singer, Tommy Thayer, and Paul Stanley. And when they see Ace Frehley and they see Peter Chris, they just go, hey, Dad, like, who are those guys, you know? And yeah. when you hear about the early history, it just brings the whole story together for them. And names like Rick Fox being there for the earliest days and telling those stories, to me, is important for those fans who want to know a little bit more about the band than just where they played last night. I agree. I agree. Again, you know, from your lips to God's ears, uh, who knows? Uh, I know. I know. One of the one of the people who signed the uh, the petition to get Bill O'Coin in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, uh, my friend Tom Feely, has been yeah uh, behind us for for quite a long time. And and uh, I'm going to see Tom actually at uh, at the upcoming Rock uh, the Rock and Pod convention in Na- uh, Nashville. Very cool. Uh, on Mar- March 18th that weekend, which I'm also playing the Keel Fest with Ron Keel and Steeler. Uh, that same weekend. So, yeah. Uh, but, but yeah, you know, we've, uh, we've always, you know, there's a lot of us behind getting Bill inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. He should be. I agree. Uh, for what he brought, what he's brought to the table as well. Um, he's you know, Boston so, local too. Yeah. Rick, this has been a fabulous hour. We appreciate you uh, getting on the line today and thank you. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And it was a, it was a blast. And, uh, you know, let's do it again soon. Yes, sir. Rick Fox, we appreciate you, sir. Thank you for your time this week here on The Chop Session. Now, y'all, this has been a fabulous season so far, our most streamed ever of the series to date for The Chop Session. So next week, we now reach our season finale for our next to last season of The Chop Session. Now, for my longtime listeners out there, you may recall late last year, we had a special presentation for Boston Free Radio and Spotify called Golden Age of Radio, a Sterling Anthology. You may recall some exclusive audio from that show I had with a brief conversation with Anna Mishtala, the founder of Beauty and Cutie, an essential hair, skin, and nails product. Well, it's only fitting we conclude this season with a full-length conversation catching up with Anna Mishtala about Beauty and Cutie's progress since that conversation. So a full-length episode of The Chop Session for Anna Mishtala, the founder of Beauty and Cutie, a catch-up. It concludes our season of The Chop Session next Monday, June 26th, 6 p.m. U.S. Eastern Time here on Boston Free Radio. So be sure to lock in for our season six finale. And of course, the final 13 episodes ever of The Chop Session begin September the 18th here on Boston Free Radio. Now, in case you have ever slept on a Boston Free Radio premiere or locked in late for an episode, say less, we got you. You can stream episodes from seasons one through six on Spotify. You can follow your man, the indefinable Sterling Golden, on social media, on Instagram at DJ Sterling Golden, on Mastodon at Sterling Golden, and on TikTok at DJ Sterling Golden, unless you live in Montana in which case you are kind of shit out of luck, unfortunately, thanks to political figures. But anyway, The Chop Session is a presentation of Boston Free Radio and 320 Entertainment. Until next week, y'all, this is your man Sterling Golden. For Boston Free Radio and The Chop Session, I say stop.